in. We're going to say that like 15 times today, so you know what to say in that. It's been a tradition in church history over years that the Easter people have shared in in those words. Um, But I have a question to start out. This might sound really, really random. Um, The question is, have you ever gone to Costco to buy four cupcakes? (laughs) Have you ever gone to Costco to buy cupcakes but only needed four? I have. A couple weeks ago, a couple friends of mine went to, uh, were having a little surprise birthday celebration for another friend, and there were only four of us that were getting together, and lo and behold, another friend had a Costco membership, and we're like, oh yeah, we, they, they, they'll do that for us, right? Absolutely not. We walked in there and tried to make a deal with the bakery people, and lo and behold, Costco only sells cupcakes in 12 packs, in dozens. And so um, we had to buy the whole thing, right? I don't know if you've ever had to do that. It's kind of all or nothing. Think about that, all or nothing. Either go home without the cupcakes or go to the party and you're cupcake free and you have to figure out something else. Or you buy all 12 cupcakes and somebody has to eat them, right? And take them home. Um, Or maybe another time, maybe you went to Costco or Sam's Club, right? And you were in need of mayonnaise, you realized. And you only needed like enough for the week. But what did they sell it in? Poof, the 32 gallon pail. It comes in a pail, right? You can't just scoop a little bit. It's all or nothing. Um, Or you go on Amazon, right? And you want to order like six six sets of chopsticks, but here you are. There's only only coming cases of 100 or 600 or 1,000 or 10,000, right? You can order chopsticks. You get all or nothing. Um, It can be kind of frustrating, right? Um, You can't go into a store and go to the battery aisle and take a little pack of AA batteries and open it and take two, right? You can't do that. It's all or nothing. You buy the whatever this is, 16 pack that it comes with. And, um, and it's sometimes you don't know those things, right? You only need a little bit, but you have to wind up getting the whole thing. But do you believe that there are also all or nothing people? They're all or nothing people. Maybe you know one. Do not look at them. You may be an all-or-nothing person if you either dress to the nines and wear suits or dresses, or you wear the PJs, right? That's your wardrobe, is either you're all dressed up, or you're, you know, I know some of you youth, you know, you teenagers, you go to school in your PJs, right? You either wear, you look really great, or you look like you just woke up out of bed, right? Um, Or you either are in the mood to clean your entire house, like scrub the entire thing, or you sit on the couch and watch Netflix all day long, right? All or nothing. You either eat an entire carton of Oreos or you don't buy them at all, right? All or nothing. Um, some of us overachievers, you know, you either get all A's in your class or you drop the class, right? It's either all or nothing. And the point is that all or nothing really means like you can't, it's either one way or another. Like it can't be like part, it can't be just like a little bit or some. And I think that that perfect, that idea perfectly resonates with Easter, with the idea of Easter. And really why Easter, right? Why Easter is so important. See, I don't know if you know this, but the core of the Christian faith actually is found in Easter. 
And, and, and I think there's some great news that comes with that. And that means, if that's true, then the foundation of the Christian faith is not Christians. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Foundation of the Christian faith is not found in Christians. We're kind of messed up at times, right? The foundation of the Christian faith isn't understanding everything 100% and having everything figured out and everything together. The foundation of the Christian faith is not a set of rules to follow to be a good person. The foundation of our faith is found in what happened in Easter. What happened at Easter. And the thing is, if Easter didn't really happen, if Christ is not risen, all of it falls apart. All of it falls apart. See, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was not an original follower of Jesus, by the way, he came a little bit after Jesus and had an encounter that totally transformed his life. He says it like this in a letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. And he says it better than I do. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's all or nothing. If Easter didn't really happen as well, if Easter didn't really happen, there's a bunch of things that don't actually make sense. Um, do you know anything at all about a man named Caesar Augustus? Do you know anything about his accomplishments or what he did or didn't do? Well, the most recollection any of us have is really tied to Jesus, right? He's the one that sent for the census and everything in the story. Do you know anything about the emperor Nero? Do you know anything about him? Do you know anything about the hundred, let me tell you this, the hundred other messiahs that were running around in the hundred years when Jesus existed? Do you know anything about them? There were like about a hundred or so. Do you know there's a guy named Thutis? There's a guy named Judas, the zealot. There's all these different people you know nothing about who claimed to be Messiah. But it's interesting, right? It's interesting that 50 years after Jesus, 50 years after Jesus, you believe there were 7,000 Christians in the world. 7,000 followers of the way is what they were called. They didn't actually call themselves Christians. That was a derogatory term. It was 7,000 Christians 50 years after Christ. 250 years after Christ, 6 million what? Right? Get this, 300 years after Christ, when it was illegal to be a follower of Jesus, there were 33 million people who believed in Jesus. It makes no sense. You know why? For 300 years, before there was even any written scriptures, before there was a New Testament, for the first 300 years, people put faith in Christ without a Bible, right? Wow, like there are no Bible studies, there are no people like circulating things, there were some letters that were going around. But about 300 years before there was a New Testament, people put faith in Jesus. It, it, think about how the name of a Jewish carpenter who only taught for three years, never traveled more than 30 miles from home, is still worshiped around the world 2,000 years later. How? How? Well, I think to understand the how, we have to look at something that's, that's really important, and that is how religions and movements begin. What is the typical story of religions and movements in the world? And, and believe it or not, there are people that study this stuff. So if you're like in college or getting ready to go to college, like you can actually like get a degree in this kind of thing. There's, there's movements. Movements have a couple of things in common. 
The first is they have a charismatic leader. A charismatic leader. Somebody that has a new or seemingly new message that they share with people around them and their people are drawn to them. They also, they appeal to the culture. They appeal to something that's going on in the culture at the time. Sometimes there's civil unrest, there's dissatisfaction. And usually what happens is, there's a, it's usually a man. A man usually says things like, you know, okay, we're going to do this, and we're going to go this way, in a way that people go, yeah, I want to believe that, right? I'm going to follow that. But the third piece here is, when they die, their followers are the ones that pick up the leadership and keep their teaching alive. And, and let me give you two examples of people that kind of fit this mold. There's many, many of them. The first is a religious example, uh, the prophet Muhammad who in the late 6th or early 7th centuries, that's when he lived, at the time the Arab, country, the Arab tribes were worshiping idols. They were worshiping all kinds of gods called polytheism. And at that time, a young man came from a cave and said that God spoke to him through an angel. And he was a gifted leader. And he proclaimed that there was one God named Allah. And before he knew it, he had a growing following people that were following him, that liked what he was saying, that were very interested in what he had to say. Pretty soon he, he grew an army and he turned all these people, all these tribes from worshiping all these different things to be monotheistic. Prophet Muhammad, he died in the year 632. You can actually go to his gravesite in Saudi Arabia. And family and friends at that time, they argued over the leadership succession about who was going to take place afterwards. That's why we have different groups like the Shiites and the Sunnis and all that. And pretty soon, the Muslims went on to conquer the Arabian Peninsula, the Holy Land, North Africa, and Spain. And there's a lot more history that I'm not going to get into that takes place after that. That's an example of a movement, a religious movement that took place. Then we also have a civic example. And you're probably more familiar with this one, Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when, in a time when the country was divided over racism, when there was segregation that was happening, blacks and whites could not eat together, go to the same schools, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., what did he do? He moved to the epicenter of the civil rights movement in Montgomery, Alabama, right to the epicenter of all that was going on. And what did he do? He introduced nonviolence into the equation. Not to get back at them and to make things right, but to do so in a nonviolent way. And that changed the whole direction of civil rights. But we know that Martin Luther King Jr., many of you were alive when this took place, he was shot and killed in 1968. But the civil rights movement continued his story. And looking at these kind of patterns, right? Charismatic leader, appealing to something going on in the culture. When they die, the followers pick those things up. Like, we would assume that the same thing was the case with Jesus, we would think that after Jesus lived and taught, and even after he was executed, his followers, we would assume, felt the need to keep the dream alive. But under close investigation, we see that this is not the case, that Jesus doesn't fit that same pattern at all. And the first problem with that is that Jesus' message didn't advocate revolution at all. It didn't advocate revolution. He talked of a new kingdom, but it wasn't what people thought at all. They were really confused about that. He said things like, my kingdom is not of this world. And people were like, what? They like, confused the heck out of them. Even his own followers followed him for three years. Like they're scratching their heads too. Like, what do you mean, Jesus? What's going on? And then other aspects of his teaching 
were totally impractical. Pray for your enemies? What? I know what I want to do with my enemies, and it's not pray. <laughs> Pay your taxes? What? Seize it? Like, he, he, they're thinking he's God. Like, I'm not going to pay him, right? Pay your tax. Guidelines for a remarriage? What? You don't do that as a Jew, right? Not a revolutionary theme. No overthrow language of what people were expecting. But the second problem was that Jesus' message, you know what it's centered around? It's centered around Jesus. What? It's centered around Jesus. It, Jesus never called on his followers to trust in his ideas, but what he did call on them was to trust who? Him. To trust him. It wasn't his ideas that even got him into trouble. It was who he claimed to be that got him in trouble. At one time, there's a story where Jesus, this is late in his ministry, he gathered with his disciples, right? And, and he's having a conversation, he's on the road, and he asks them, I'm curious, like, people are saying stuff on the street, and, and I want to ask you all, who do you think I am? And Peter, some of you may know this story, Peter replies, he says, I think you are the Christ. I think you are the Messiah. I think you are the son of the living God. And what was Jesus' response? Well, Jesus didn't say, whoa, Peter, let's not get carried away here. Like, don't go that way. He said, right. And I know that because God told you that. There's another time when Jesus is with his buddy Lazarus. He was good, good friends with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And it's just a time after Lazarus has, has died and really confused everybody because Jesus didn't like do anything, but then he died and then he comes back. And, and, and Jesus is having a conversation with Mary and Martha about what's taking place. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say, I cause or believe in. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. He says that. He says that. The message centered around who Jesus was. That's what he taught and what he talked about. But I think another thing that we see that is not the case that lines with, with the movement idea was that Jesus' goal was not to leave his followers with a collection of insights and stories to pass on. That was not his goal at all. He did. He had lots of great insights and lots of great stories, and many of them do live on, but that was not his goal. And so kind of like thinking of this all together, when his disciples, when Jesus' disciples watched him die on the cross, what they saw, what they thought they were watching was the movement die with him. They thought the movement was dead, like game over, right? End of the game, what do you do? You turn it off, you go home. Unlike anyone who started any movement, he claimed to be the mission. And when he died, no one believed his message, no one believed his claims, and the movement died with him. And we said this a few weeks ago in our eyewitness sermon series. There, there were no Christians at the cross. There was no, like, you know, grand opening of the Chick-fil-A. I'm going to camp out here, and I'm going to get cozy, and then I'm going to be there for the grand opening. Like, there was nobody doing that at the tomb waiting for Jesus to rise. It, it, was, it was not taking place. You know what was at the cross, though? Confusion. Total Confusion. But then we also see that nobody stood by. Nobody stood by like his or her man. Nobody was there. They all left. Even before the cross, even before Jesus died, his followers scattered. Peter, he's like most like his buddy, buddy, Peter, denied knowing him. 
All accounts tell us there were no heroes in the story. Contrary to what legends that were made up, fake legends that were written at the time, everybody had a hero in those stories, but there were no heroes in this story. The very people who bring us the story of Jesus actually present themselves as cowards. Think about that. Peter, John, like, like the, they, they see themselves as cowards. You know, think about well, when you watch a movie, you know, usually we can identify with certain characters. We can kind of see ourselves or we, you know, when you're a kid, like you want to be a certain person. Like um, when you're watching like a movie, nobody chooses to identify with the cowardly lion. Nobody thinks of themselves as Sir Robin. Nobody wants to be George McFly, right? You don't see yourself as that. If you're making up a story, you want to be the hero. And if you're making it up, you figure out how to write yourself as a hero. At least characterize yourself as a little smarter and more astute than you actually are, right? So what happened? What happened? Well, something happened. And that was the resurrection. That was Easter. Easter had to happen for the story or else none of it makes sense. There's none of it makes sense. See, on Friday... On Friday, Jesus was tried in this kind of kangaroo court in the middle of the night, and then he, he's, he's given a cross, and he walks to take the cross, and, and there's people really confused about what's going on, and there's Roman soldiers spinning on him, and he's hung on a cross to die, and, and he dies there, and everybody thinks game over, right? Everybody that hasn't left is, or is leaving. And, and at that point, Jesus had to be checked twice to make sure he was dead. There's different, different accounts that talk of this. Two men wrap his body, take it down off the cross, wrap his body, place it in a tomb. And we're told that it's almost sundown, so it's the Sabbath, and Sabbath starts at sundown. So you got to get wrap things up really, really quickly, literally, right? And so they did a job, and they closed the tomb, and they assumed, like, okay, somebody's going to go back later to finish the anointing and the process that would take place. And so we see it's Sunday after Passover. We see that who picks up the slack? The women, right? The women pick up the slack. They go to finish the job that the men had started that hadn't finished with anointing Jesus' body. And we hear this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved, John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So let's just pause there. In the first century, women had no credibility. Women had no credibility, could not appear or testify in court. Um, if, if writers could somehow tell the story of the resurrection, if they could tell the story of the resurrection without including the women, I think they probably would have done it to make it a little bit more believable to people. But do you know why they tell us that women were the first to discover the empty tomb? You know why? Because women were the first to discover the empty tomb. <laughs> you notice, though, that, that Mary, Mary, when she goes and sees this empty tomb, she doesn't go running to the disciples and tell them, hey, he's risen from the dead. Like, she doesn't say that here. What does she say? She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Once again, nobody was camping out. Nobody was thinking Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They didn't believe what the, he had said. They forgot all about it. I mean, think about this. Bell bottoms, 
Trucker hats and platform shoes all come back, but people do not. They, they didn't assume a resurrection. They assumed that somebody had taken the body, which is what many people sometimes assume happened to Jesus. They assumed, Mary assumed that somebody had taken the body. That was where her mind went the first time. And when she went back to the men, the men probably said something like this. In Luke's account, they have a little bit of a different story, but the men probably said, you know women, they're just emotional, right? They probably got lost and went to the wrong tomb. (laughs) This is nonsense. I wonder why we don't allow women in court. Let's go check for ourselves. And I think the women said, go right ahead. So they went for themselves to see. So the story continues. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter, maybe tripped him, we don't know, but reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The guys had done an okay job, I guess. The, The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. But yet there's this little parenthesis, which I identify with. But they don't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Just a point of clarification there. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And then in just a few few short verses later, we're told this, that on the evening of that first day of the week, a little bit later in the day, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders while the women were going to the tomb, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And you know what the women said? I told you so, (laughs) right? I told you so. But just looking at this, Jesus' followers didn't re-engage because of something that Jesus taught. Jesus' followers re-engaged because of what and who they saw, Jesus. Some people say, well, you know, the story goes, like you kind of read this and some people would say, well, Jesus probably wasn't really dead, right? That's sometimes what people say. But It's interesting, the Roman soldiers, they were professional killers. Professional killers. Their lives, their lives depended on people dying on crosses. Nobody was going to be let off any cross in any condition if you had any somewhat of a sign of life. But imagine that even somehow Jesus had survived some like somehow his pulse like when you know you've heard stories of those kinds of things happening imagine somehow he survived and it was like enough to fool miracle max and everything um that that he was taken down in a coma and then imagine being locked in a cold cave must have really helped revive him after being slashed and losing almost half his blood for three days like that must have really helped i guess no gatorade no neosporin for the wounds Um, And then after that, he had to have rolled a two-ton stone away on his own. And imagine at that point, he finally found his disciples, probably looking like something out of The Walking Dead, right? At this point, zombie-like. And then he lies to them to say, I've been risen. I came out of the tomb. And what do they do? Well, in the next uh, 20, 40, 60 years, they're martyred for their faith. 
They give their lives because Jesus told them a lie and he looked half dead. You know, any normal person who would have encountered Jesus would have first said, get medical attention, Jesus, right? Get some medical attention. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess that part of the story, I guess if you tell it that way, it, it's possible, but I think very unlikely. But then we see what is the message of the early church? The early church that comes later, that comes after Jesus, that is t- telling the Jesus stories, how they've seen him. And if they hadn't seen him, they know somebody who has. Their message is what? Is it be nice, love everybody, be a good Samaritan and help people? No, their message was the resurrection. The resurrection. In Acts 3, 15, Peter says this. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. See, we don't believe, that those of us in the Christian faith, we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. We believe because history and a boatload of eyewitnesses show us so. See, the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything. It changes even more, I would say, than, than just maybe a perspective. Maybe you haven't thought about what had actually happened in this way that I've described. But the resurrection of Jesus changes even more. It changes your story. Not just history, but your story. See, because, because of Jesus, we can walk into the tombs of our lives. And because of Jesus, guess what we can do? We can walk out. And we can walk out alive. That the end is not the end. See, Jesus rose and overcame death so that we too, we could trust in him and, and also overcome death. That death would no longer be final. And, and that's good news, right? Good news, especially if you've lost a loved one. But that's only one side of it, friends. Only one side of it. Well, uh, a friend of mine that has um, a new puppy, I don't know if anybody has a new puppy here, um, also has uh, two children that um, are given the task of helping to care for the puppy in the puppyhood that you gotta wake up in like all hours, like having a child, right? Not like they're having like a third child. But they have this puppy and um, they have a little son named Marcus. And Marcus's job, he's given a little allowance, is to walk the dog. He's trying to teach like some leash training and going for walks with this puppy. And Marcus's job every day is to walk the dog and to kind of encourage him to do so. Yeah, he's given a little bit of money each week to do so. Well, one Saturday, um, my friend was at home doing some work in the house and all of a sudden, like, like her phone rang and she picks it up. Here it's the neighbor, the neighbor across the street. And the neighbor says, look outside. You're not going to believe what your, your son is doing. And she's like, oh my gosh, what's going, like you know, all the things, especially he's like, he's like five years old, like what's going on? What's happening? She looks outside and this is the picture that she sees. Yeah, he had it in his head. He's like, well, if I walk the dog, right, I can get some more money and I can earn myself an allowance for all the times that I do a dog walking. And of course, my friend laughed and, you know, went out to go see him as he was there and stuff. But, um, but what was he missing? It's, it's kind of, it's not a trick question. The dog, Right. If you're dog walking, like you need a dog to dog walk, right? And he's doing the leash, uh, dragging you. They make those little things too. Like you go to the, you know, you go to the beach and they have those little uh, invisible dog walking things. But you're missing the dog. But, but 
Have you ever felt that way, though? That you've been going through life missing something really, really important? Have you ever gone through life that, that, you're go- that you're missing something, that you're going through all the motions and things that are going on, but you're missing the most important part? Well, that's the part of the story that sometimes we miss when we fast forward to the eternity and the heaven peace and the promise of overcoming death. The resurrection initiated a new kingdom. Jesus started here where he's making all things new, including you, and that includes your purpose. See, the resurrection shows it's never too late to turn around. It's never too late to have God do something new. It's never too late, and, and, and maybe that's your story. The resurrection of Jesus changes your story for purpose, for possibility that the end is not the end, for hope. And I, let me say this, it's okay to not have it all figured out but still trust in Jesus. And I'll be the first to say, I don't, you know, here I am, my professional pastor, like she has everything. Like, I don't, like there's days it's like, how did that work, right? Like I come from a science background and, and I struggle with how did all the cell, cells and molecular biology take place? Like when that resurrection happened, like what happened to the state of um, atrophy in the body? And like, I know like how death takes place and like all this, I'm trying to like figure it out, but does that negate me still believing? No. Causes me to ask questions, causes me to help trust. And so today, on this Easter Sunday, when yes, He is risen indeed, I want to offer you a simple invitation. You know, that whatever your relationship has been with God, whether you've been turned on or turned off, whether whatever your relationship has been with faith or with church, that Easter is a brand new day. That I want to invite you that maybe this would be a starting point for resurrection in your faith, in your life. Maybe faith has slipped through your fingers. Maybe forgiveness is something that you're seeking. Maybe just that purpose, right? You've been walking the leash without the dog to say, yes, I want that. Yes, I want to follow. You know, what new life, my question is, what new life does Jesus have ahead for you? Or maybe for you today, It's just trusting in the power of resurrection, even if you don't see it, even if it looks impossible. And I think Paul goes on in his letter to 1 Corinthians to sum this up rather well, and I'm going to use the message translation. I think Eugene Peterson says this in a really well way. If if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is, the Christ has been raised up the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. For yes, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today in celebration, in celebration of the empty tomb, in celebration of how you were a part of this story. You were part of that fulfillment of your promises to your people many, many years before. And Lord, how you call us into that story. How this, yes, this is something that happened and took place. Not a legend or a fable or a fairy tale, but something real that that has changed history and also begs to change us. That we can look forward with hope. We can look forward with with promise. We can look forward with purpose 
because of what you have done. And I know from my own experience, life is a whole lot fuller with you in the picture. And God, we come to you today as people that are continually in need of your resurrection. We know and understand that, yes, you're with us. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but, but we can trust. We can place our hope in you. And Lord, and I pray for each one who's gathered here, those who are online, for the stories in need of your resurrection, for the families in need of your resurrection, for the dreams in need of your resurrection, for the lives and eternities that are in need of your resurrection, Lord, help us to trust in you for that. And Lord, you meet us where we are. You meet us here around this table today, Lord, and we know, and you know that, no, we're broken. <laughs> we fail just like the disciples did. We run away from you. We run away from the things that you have shared with us. We run away from trusting you. We mess up, we, we sin, we hurt others, we cause such evil and brokenness. And yet, Lord, you never turn your face away from us, but you rather run towards us. And you offer us your grace. Grace, that's what it's about. It's not about earning our way to be right with you, but that we can have a relationship with you if we turn towards you and we receive your grace. Lord, receive your grace today. We receive it, we receive your forgiveness and we share the prayer together that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Jesus gathered with his disciples on the night before he gave himself up. And as was the custom, he gathered around that table, which was a Passover meal, and he celebrated with them, even though they didn't recognize what he was doing. But as part of that meal, he took ordinary items. He took bread and he blessed it and broke it, and said, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. For you. Do this every time you eat it in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this, all of you, and drink it. This is my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. That he called on his disciples to that every time you take this bread and you drink this cup, be reminded of who I am. Be reminded of what I've done for you. And be reminded of my presence with you. And we look forward to the day that we will be reunited with the saints who have gone before us. Once again, that death is not the final sting. That we will be reunited around that heavenly banquet table when God fulfills his promises and continues to make all things new, including us. And let's pray together that that may be so. Lord, pour out your spirit on these gifts, Lord, on this bread and on this cup, Lord, and on this juice that's inside. And Lord, pour out your spirit on us as people who are created in your image, as people who are loved by our creator, God, as people you sent your son to the cross for that we would have full relationship with you, that we can trust you, not just with today, 
but with our tomorrow too. And Lord, help us as your people to come together in that community that is called the church, to be an example and to embody, to, to show your grace to the world, Lord, to show a glimpse of the kingdom that you will fully establish one day, that we would share hope with all that we encounter, we would share joy and that peace that you give us that surpasses all understanding. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll invite those who are serving to come forward. And um, today here at Table Life Church, um, you'll see, um, if you've been with us before, you've noticed that our bread is a little bit different, right? Um, usually we serve matzah bread, the kind of flat bread that was served in the Passover today. This Bread has flour, well, not, right, let me say, this is gluten-free, so um, gluten-free for all our gluten-free friends, but this is risen bread <clears throat> to celebrate our risen Savior, um, and here at Table Life Church, this is what we call an open table, which means it's open to you. You don't have to be a member here, go through a class, just a desire to receive God's grace, and you're welcome and invited to come forward, and, um, and one of our servers will take off a piece of bread. They'll take that off for you and they'll dip it into the cup for you and then hand it to you to receive. Those of you guys online, you're also invited to participate. Grab some bread, some crackers, and some juice. And you can also be a part of our worship here. And one last thing, the prayer altars are also open for you. If you would like to just take a time of prayer, especially on this Easter Sunday, maybe there's something that needs resurrection in your life to go to the Lord in prayer about. So come forth and receive the body and the blood of our risen Christ.